I don't know. I'm hearing from all those people right now saying I could have, would have, should have bought X, Y, or Z. And that's the situation you got to face as an investor right now. Because, you know, imagine you had the chance to buy NVIDIA or Palantir when it was under $6 a share. It's now up 300 something percent over the last 12 months. You know, there's a lot of people that are kicking themselves in the you know what, because they didn't. Why? Because they let their emotions get the better of them. And that's a tough place to be. Welcome to Wealthy On. I'm Eric Chevy. We are kicking off the new year, 2024. A lot of landmines this year. A lot of people were wrong a year ago. A lot of predictions from 12 months ago, they did not pan out in the last 12 months. So what will this new year bring for this enlightening conversation? I'm bringing in Keith Fitzgerald. He's the principal of the Keith Fitzgerald Group, and he's got the Five With Fits, the daily newsletter that 25,000 individual investors read every single day. Keith, a lot of people thought you were crazy a year ago. Your trades turned out to be pretty well. I hope we're getting the good crazy this year. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. It's a thrill to be here. I think we're headed into what can be an extraordinarily compelling year this year. You know, a lot of people thought I was stark raving mad last year at this time when I said, hey, text the place you want to be. Because if you remember, those things were going into the basement and nobody thought they were coming up for air. But in fact, you know, if you go back, you get that longer term trend, they're still going to be the place to be. I think we're going to look at 15, maybe even 20 percent higher on top of that coming into this year, Eric just for tech or just for everything? Well, generally, you know, rising tide is going to raise all boats. Now that we've got the Fed beginning to be on the sidelines, we've got some other things happening. It sets up what could be a very compelling year, particularly if you concentrate with the best and you ignore the rest. Concentrate with the best, ignore the rest. A lot of people though have said that's a problem, right? Oh, it's only the Magnificent Seven. Everything else is down. We're really in a bear market, if not for this little handful of companies, what do you say about that? The narrowness of the, of the bull market? Well, I tell them the same thing I've told investors for years is diversification. As you know, it hasn't worked for a decade or more. What's the problem with concentration? Warren Buffett's got five, five stocks that count for 80, 90% of his portfolio. You've got other big time billionaire managers doing the same thing. Why on earth would you spread your money around and throw pasta at the wall to see what sticks? This is the time in your investing life where the trends are clearly lined up, the liquidity is lined up, and in fact, the money is moving to the very best companies. The rest of the stuff is going to get left by the wayside. What about all the bears, the doom and gloom guys, the ones that say, hey, look at debts, deficits, you know, the Treasury might have a failed auction. You're looking at the Fed can't manage this whole process correctly and the markets are way too overheated. Everything's going to collapse. We're going to lose 40%. What do you say to that real bearish perspective? Well, I hear from those folks all the time and, you know, they've, a lot of them have been singing the same tune since 2009. They've never gotten back into the markets. And in fact, they sat on the sidelines. Even a busted clock is right twice a day. So here's the thing, right? They're all very clearly intelligent people, many of them anyway. They make very compelling arguments. But the danger with a perma bear psyche is that History shows very clearly profits go to the optimists. So yeah, you could be right at moments in time if you're a pessimist, but I'd rather deal with the optimism. I'd rather deal with the fact that the markets are growing, that the capital is an expansion philosophy. Because if I can find the best companies, I can find those that are making the world a better place to live, then you know what? The odds are very high that the profits are going to follow or be along for the ride the entire time. So I want to, I want to get into some of these things. Let's dig deeper into a tech you know, how do you deal with the Fed and all these other things? But but just walk us through a little bit. If someone's never heard of you before, if this is their first time being exposed to Keith Fitzgerald, 
I know you're doing a lot of the quantum mentals. You've got that chaos theory background. There's, there's heavy duty quantitative mathematical approach to what you're doing. What makes your approach different than maybe the other prognosticators out there? Well, number one, I've got uh, the enviable or unenviable uh, track record of having gotten a lot of this stuff right and very publicly on public television over the last 15 years. So a lot of folks claim to have a beat on this, but in fact, you know, I've got thousands of appearances where I've correctly called this out. Now, one of these days, Eric, I'm going to be horrifically wrong. I just hope it's not tomorrow. So, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I never will be. I don't pretend to be. But, you know, what we do, we look at the markets using a lens that not very many people do. We use chaos theory, the science of complexity, what you want to call it. What we are able to do is we apply the unapplicable to the numbers. So for example, a conventional mathematician would say, well, you know, if you take a political poll, 97% plus or minus 3%, that's the error factor. Somebody like me is going to look at that and say the science of complexity, the real signals in that 3% that other people regard as statistical error. So when we're looking at this, I'm looking at big drawn out themes. I want to focus on where the money is going, where the money is going to get spent, no matter what, or practically no matter what anyway, no matter who's in the White House, no matter what the economy is doing. These are things like AI, for example, three to $5 trillion going to be in the global economy next year, year after that, because of the birth of AI. This is on par with the introduction of penicillin, the introduction of electricity. You know, these are themes that make investing a game of probabilities, not possibilities. So our analysis focuses on where the money's going, where it's going with high certainty, where it's gonna go and it's not gonna be interrupted. And we're focusing on the very best companies in their space. I don't care about anybody else that's playing across the margins because those are companies that may not survive. And again, going to this concentration methodology rather than diversification, We've had the good fortune of been following tech really for 10, 15 years. That's led the charge. It is still going to lead the charge. It's going to lead the charge in every other industry from medicine to something as simple as your car mechanic. Anybody's going to use that kind of technology to improve their businesses. Investors need to understand that this is not just about the tech. It's about the use case. Eric, five years ago, there were less than 10 use cases for AI. Now there's over 50. So that number is going to expand again and again and again. And as an investor, it's simply a matter of, to paraphrase Steve Jobs, you connect where the dots are going. That's your job. That's what you got to do. And that's all I'm doing. You make a good point on the penicillin. When, when that came out, that definitely, it was real, right? Solved disease. But no one talks about where, whether it was a bull market or a bear market, right? Like this is just, this is just something that worked, right? It worked and it worked forever and it was done, period, problem solved. It's it, maybe AI is like that, right? Like no one's going to go back retroactively and say, oh, that would have been a good investment, but it was a bear market, right? Or the economy was a little bit overinflated, right? Oh, I, 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 right. <laughs> I don't know. I'm hearing from all those people right now saying I could have, would have, should have bought X, Y, or Z. And that's the situation you got to face as an investor right now, because, you know, imagine you had the chance to buy NVIDIA or Palantir when it was under $6 a share. It's now at 300 something percent over the last 12 months. You know, there's a lot of people that are kicking themselves in the you know what, because they didn't. Why? Because they let their emotions get the better of them. And that's a tough place to be. And, and I understand, you know, I'm a trader. I'm an investor. I've been doing this 43 years. Your emotions do get the better of you if you let them. So one of the things, one of the real challenges for investors coming into 2024 is that you've got to take what the perma bears are saying about the debt, about the lack of government um, uh, stability, about the dollar. You got, I mean, all those things are not necessarily wrong, but 
the question you've got to source as an investor is how do I strip that stuff out? How do I keep my mind and my wits about me so I can focus on what I know to be true? History says, when in doubt, you zoom out because that's how you see the real patterns. That's a piece of chaos theory. It's not the stuff that matters is here. It's the stuff that's big that matters. If you start talking days, weeks, months, now all of a sudden you see that trend again. And if you can get with the best companies, the best executives, the fortress-like balance sheets, that is how you're going to chart a path to the forward. Do you think diversification is dead? If, if we were having this conversation 10 years ago, would you still be saying, pick the five to 10 narrowly best stocks, or would you say diversification is okay back then? Well, again, diversification is a theory is okay, but the problem is that the computerization, the rise of passive investments, the change in liquidity have all taken that argument and gamed it. So, you know, I was talking with a very famous mathematician in Santa Fe named Dr. Murray Gelman, and he told me 10 years ago, more than that, 12 years ago, he said, Keith, you know, when you're starting to work with chaos theory, he said, you're going to spend the next 10, 12 years talking about these things. I know you're right because it's the same thing that led me to the discovery of quarks. Now, this is Dr. Gelman talking. And he said, then you're going to have people who aren't going to believe you. Then you're going to have people who say, well, maybe that guy was right. And then you can have a whole bunch of people suddenly arrive in the party and forget you even brought up the argument in the first place. So the fact that diversification as a theory is interesting, but it's been busted for over 10 years, isn't new to me. It's new to a whole bunch of other investors who are just waking up to that. It's new to a bunch of professional asset advisors who are using desperately broken models and outmoded theories to plan for their clients. That's just the way it is. So Again, I'm not brighter than anybody. I'm not smarter than anybody, but I see the world very differently. And the world right now is one of concentration. It's one of being with the best companies. It's looking for companies that are growing at 30, 40, 50, 60% a year or more because they are tapped into the major trends and themes that are changing our world, that are picking up the broad sweeping changes that conventional diversification models won't. In fact, the data that I've got in the research that people a lot smarter than me have is that diversification is holding people back. Let's talk about this more. So are you saying, you know, if you've got that S&P 500 ETF, right? A lot of people are doing something like that. Are you saying dump that, pick 10 good stocks and, and you'll be much better off? Well, again, every investor is different. You know, there are a lot of people who find comfort in investing in the S&P 500. That's worked for a long time. You're probably going to do okay. But something as simple as, you know, this past year, we saw Microsoft and Apple, which are among the most conservative of the Magnificent Seven. Those things shot up 50, 60, 70%. The S&P turned in what, 13, 14, 15%? So even on something as short as a 12-month window, you're going to begin to see this outperformance. If you look at a company like Tesla, which is up thousands of percent, versus still a very respectable but great 200%, suddenly that index fund doesn't look so compelling. So what you want to think about is, you know, how do I balance that comfort level? How do I balance that need, that, that ethos that's been taught to legions of investors about spreading your money around and balancing that with concentration? How do you learn to unwind decades of what I submit is bad behavior to focus on the stuff you actually do want to own? And, is you know, that's hard to talk about, right? So let me, let me, just drive this home with one further example. You know, if you're investing using diversification, you're investing like you're watching cable television. You've got to get the channels you don't want to see the few that you do. So right. I submit go a la carte. History suggests that's a pretty prudent course of action, particularly if you can line up with the big themes of our time. So a couple of things. Is it that once the 
that's called the ETF wave, the index fund wave, the diversification wave. Once it took over, did it change the dynamics of the market? Because all of a sudden now we had way fewer active investors. No one was trying to pick stocks. Everyone was passive. And in a world where everyone is passive, it, it, the theory doesn't hold up when it was designed in a world where no one was passive. Bingo. And the problem with that, again, you know, ETFs, mutual funds, I mean, you know, this was all great thinking at the time and it was very valid at the time. It worked for a long time. But the problem is that all of the other changes that came along as a result of that. So for example, take an ETF. When that thing's trading, it's modeled against a benchmark. If the stocks and the benchmark start to move, there's an awful lot of computerized trading that has to keep up to rebalance it to make sure it's tracking. So you've gone from a position of 5, 10, 15% of the market being computerized decades ago to now where you've got 70, 80% of the marketplace on a daily basis that is totally automated trading so fast a human can't keep up with it if for no other reason than just to rebalance, just to keep up with the passive investments, just to keep track of the indices. So factor in things like zero DTE options, factor in market mechanics, liquidity. Now all of a sudden you've got a witch's brew where you've got massive changes in something called gamma risk, the price sensitivity to a move. Options players are learning how to figure that out. So it's become a radically different environment today. And again, that sounds terrible to an individual investor, but believe it or not, and this is something we talk with our clients about all over the world, that's actually an advantage to the individual investor because Wall Street has to keep its money moving. Eric. They have to continue to do this because that's how they derive their profits, that they have to have certain names on their books when they have those annual meetings with their clients. But if you're an individual investor, you can pick your battles, you can pick your tactics, you can pick the companies you want to buy, and you can do it when you want to do it at the price you want. So it's actually, funny enough, counterintuitively, a huge advantage for the individual investor right now. In fact, dare I say it, I don't think there's been a more compelling time to be an individual investor than there is right now coming into this year. So, so then the, the next logical question, though, is, okay, that's great if you can pick the right stocks, right? A lot of people... They're terrible stock pickers, or they don't know how to when to enter, when to get out. Their emotions get the best of them. How do we know here at the beginning of the year what to pick? A lot of you know, Nvidia was a good example from last year. Very controversial. It isn't really going to go that much. Tesla's been a controversial stock, so I don't want to necessarily get into specific companies, but in terms of a framework, a thought process for when you're looking at this year, how does somebody know if you said, "Hey, pick ten stocks." What is the process to do it? Because a lot of times the best stocks to pick are the ones that are already at all-time highs. And it, it's hard to go ahead and buy things that have already had such a big move. You feel like, I missed the move now. I'm buying them so expensively. Well, we break it down very, very simply in terms that a fifth grader could understand. You know, number one, you buy companies. First thing you got to do is you got to separate the companies you want to buy. You ask yourself, are they making goods and services that the world cannot live without? We call those must-have investments because you must have them or the world doesn't turn. Then you've got the nice to have stuff. The nice to have stuff, Eric, is the stuff on the margins. That's the stuff that may or may not make it. I'm not interested in that. What I want is the best one, two, or three in whatever sector it's got that's making must have products and services, has a fortress-like balance sheet, has a great track record of turning stuff to the investors, and on top of all that, has a visionary CEO who's capable of executing to his mission. A lot of these companies are great or they were great at one point in time, but the current CEO or current management has lost its mojo. So I would 
would submit, you know, those companies are not worth wasting your time. Again, this is, this is a matter of simply focusing on what you want to do, what you want to accomplish. It's your money and it's your responsibility. So why would you fall for something else that anybody else is talking about? But if you can go for the must-have companies, you can identify the strong players, you understand the CEOs, this doesn't have to be complicated. People make it that way, but it doesn't have to be. How would you rank those priorities? Must-have products, quality management, fortress balance sheet. If you had to rank those three, what matters the most? Must-have products, number one. Quality balance sheet, number two, because you got to have the size, scope, and scale to survive whatever market volatility, economic conditions, good, bad, or ugly, come your way. And you've got to have a CEO that is capable of moving to the first two. And there's a lot of companies out there that, again, are household names, but maybe aren't what they once were because either the company's changed, the mission's changed, maybe they haven't kept up with the times. There's a lot of companies out there that, again, are not in that one, two, or three, and they don't make those must-have products anymore. So I wouldn't touch those. You know, you start looking around, you look at the house or you think about why Warren Buffett, I think Buffett was an Apple investor, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And he said, look, everyone's got these phones, right? They're, they're stuck to their bodies. The first thing they touch in the morning, it's the last thing they touch at night. And you look around, you know, what, what is the software we're using here? Right? What operating system we're using? You start to think about what are the true must-haves in a world where, let's say, for example, cord cutting on cable, right? Does anyone need a cable provider anymore? Is that a nice to have, a must-have? balance, right? You, you do start thinking about when you look around in the world, like the old the old Peter Lynch approach, right? Buy what you know, buy the products that you're experiencing with. And and we do, you sort of see like, okay, this is why the Magnificent Seven had their run, right? Those are the things that everybody is using or is, is very close to being able to use. Well, for example, I mean, Apple's a great example. Listen, I, I was just talking about that on one of the networks the other day. You know, people said, well, are we going to buy this company or that company? Are we going to get into cryptocurrencies? Are we going to do X, Y, and Z? And I said, you know, I really don't care about any of these things. I want the device. I want to invest in the company that makes the device that everybody uses to check those things, which is the iPhone. And if you look at how inflation raised over the last couple of years and, you know, people are saying, oh, groceries this, companies this, supply chain that, cost of this, politics you know what? I didn't care. I didn't hear one story about a single investor giving up their iPhone because of inflation. In fact, they were buying more of them. So, you know, that to me is a classic must have versus a nice to have. I want the must haves any day of the week. Right. It's funny. People will clip coupons or not go out to eat or, you know, let's say cut cable or cut Hulu or Netflix, whatever it is, save 10 bucks a month. But then they got this thousand dollar thing in their wallet. They're not giving that up. Ever. No. So, and, and as a matter of fact, they're going to use that thousand dollar thing in their wallet to take pictures of the coupons they're clicking. So right. then they can go to the store and upload it to the checkout counter right. and get their discount. Right. That, that's a good point. So, so get your perspective on, on big tech, you know, the, the, the quality companies, and you're not just, you're just not that worried about the fact that they already had these big runs. And you would still say, here we are, Jan 24, keep buying them. Well, yes, and here's why. And this is a reason. This is this is another one of these stories that I've been ahead of for many, many years, but is beginning to come to the forefront. People are just going, "Wait a minute, something's not right here." The problem with a lot of the way these companies are looked at, people say, "Oh, that company is expensive. Nvidia is expensive. Apple's right. expensive. Microsoft everything's is expensive. expensive. Everything's, everything's expensive. expensive." If I had a dollar for being expensive, I'd have my yacht parked next to Bezos's yacht <laughs> in my bin. But I don't. Here's the thing, though, right? Is expensive according to what? 
the accounting rules that we use to classify these companies that produce many of the metrics, the return on investment, the price earnings ratio, all of these things, the accounting rules are set up to reflect a manufacturing economy of 100, 120 years ago. They don't recognize digital investment as a capital expense the way it should be. So I would submit that what you've got is a counterintuitive, very false flag. You've got companies that look expensive because the P doesn't match the E, when in fact the E hasn't begun to produce value yet because it's all digital. This is, this is the great dilemma. So you've got, in fact, the value trap. You've got companies where they're falling to the six, seven, eight, nine PE ratios and people think, oh, those are cheap. I'm going to buy them. I would submit that's the real trap because those things are not being capitalized correctly or, or, or amortized or recognized from an accounting standpoint when, in fact, the real potential is in the digital technologies, in the customizable medicine, it's in the pharma world, all of which is beginning to embrace technology and move ahead. So to me, it's, it's, it's a tremendous juxtaposition. Anybody who wants to move ahead is going to have to be aware of these kinds of things because there's something we talk about with our folks around the world constantly. The rules of money are changing. And if you understand that rather than fight it, it becomes an awful lot easier to begin to recognize the companies around you and bring them into your portfolio. I appreciate that perspective. I hadn't thought about that before. The accounting rules are old. They're meant for manufacturing companies. You sort of think of them as a 1900s era type yep. of thing. And now we are well into the, in the 2000s here. But what do you mean by the rules of money are changing? What, what, what was the impetus for why the rules have changed? Well, again, you know, the rules are, are it's a diverse rule book. It's a, it's a big playbook. So you've got pay for order flow, you've got liquidity, you've got all kinds of manipulation. And that's a dirty word, but it's there with regard to zero DT options, pin risk. The markets are very, very sophisticated, very quick and very computerized. And so that is the kind of stuff where, you know, you can't just walk in and buy a stock anymore. So people, for example, one of the things we talk about a lot, and I, you know, on television as well, so-and-so reported earnings and the price crashes. Well, that's not a mystery to me because if you understand the rules of money, it's very logical. It becomes, in fact, almost predictable. What traders have figured out is the psychology. It's like playing poker. You know, you want to learn to read the table rather than figure out what the cards are because if you're coming into earnings, everybody's widely expecting them to be really good. Wall Street's traders are going to front run that trade. They're going to begin to create the FOMO. They're going to create the desire because they know the average retail investor won't bother to take a moment in a deep breath and understand what's happening. So they're going to drive that price up. Great earnings are going to come out. The retail investors say, aha, they're great earnings. I'm going to buy. And then the big traders who are operating on a much shorter time frame with much higher degrees of leverage are going to short the snot out of it or take it the other direction for a few days. Then they're going to scare all the money, the weak money out and do it again. So if you begin to think like somebody who understands changed rules as opposed to applying the same old rules to a different situation, you're going to have an advantage. Along those lines, what are the questions that you keep getting from people, whether it's individual investors, professional managers, what are misconceptions and myths along what you were just saying that you have to, you find yourself, people don't get it. You have to keep repeating yourself and say, look, this is what's happening. And, and I, I need to beat this over your head with it. <laughs> well, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of things, and again, you know, one of the one of the really cool things that I love about this business, and I've you know I've been involved in global markets as an investor, a trader, an analyst, a consultant worldwide for over 43 years, and one of the things I really love about this business is there are no stupid questions, and there's always an edge. And it doesn't matter whether you're 15 years old, which is how old I was when I made my first trades, or whether you're a grizzled veteran that's been doing this for decades longer than I have, and you got hundreds of millions of dollars at your fingertips. 
Finding success in the markets is about recognizing an opportunity that other people don't see. It's about applying the knowledge you have unique to you differently than what the establishment does. So to me, I look at this and the questions I get are, well, gosh, you know, is diversification bad? No, but you got to think about it differently. What you really want to do, concentration is also a form of diversification. It's just not spreading your money around willy-nilly. It's making a very deliberate choice to concentrate and focus. So you want to blend it too. We have tactics. People talk about us all the time. Well, I'm going to go buy all this stock at once. Well, if you do that, you might as well go to Vegas and throw all your money at the table because you got a 50-50 probability you're not going to have it in about a few minutes. So if you zoom out, if you change your tactics, you do something as simple as dollar cost averaging in, you take away that risk and you begin to harness the volatility that others fear. We get asked a lot about you know themes versus sectors. Now, that's a really big one. We have what we call the five Ds. We have diversification, dislocation, defense, distribution, digitalization. These are all trends, Eric, that are backed by a trillion dollars or more that will get spent practically no matter what happens in the market next, no matter what the Fed does next, no matter how Wall Street tries to hijack something in, in its own image. And that's the kind of stuff that gets my attention because now we can deal with, as investors, probabilities as opposed to possibilities. I can give you odds and predictable behavior all day long by looking around and trying to figure out the mood of other traders, but I have no idea what they're holding. I don't know whether they're going to go long or short, but if I can focus on those must-have companies, find the great CEOs, and I know who's making their money, you know what? Suddenly, this becomes an element of predictable, and there's comfort in that. Well, walk us through these five Ds. I'm curious to hear more. I, I heard defense, I heard digital, you went, you went quickly, just break it down a little bit for us. Sure, so digitalization is the biggest by far of any of the five trends we follow, the five Ds, right? That's what we call them, so digitalization. And I'm not talking about like putting your x-rays on a digital stick and taking it to your doctor's office. What I'm talking about is akin to AI. I'm talking about the world of information and what we're doing now. I mean, 90 plus percent of all the information that's ever been created in the history of humanity has been created within the last few years. And now we've got computers, we've got the computing strength to do something about it with companies like Palantir and Apple and Microsoft and others in the cloud space who are beginning to harness that and find relationships that humans could not, even on their best day. So that's a big one. Defense, no brainer. We've got looking at Ukraine, we've got the situation Israel-Gaza, we've got Taiwan, China moves there. North Korea is clearly not gonna make any, any friends at the campfire you know, coming up. So. That's a no-brainer to me. Many of those companies have been beaten down. So if you subscribe to Warren Buffett or Peter Lynch, you buy because of a margin of safety. You buy, you know, in my world, the way I describe it is you buy great companies when they've been kicked to the curb and nobody else wants them. History is very clear that's a good thing to do. Then we've got dislocation, which is the spreading out of resources. Distribution, which is how you actually get water, electricity, information, payments, money. That's stuff that, how do you spread that stuff around? And then diffusion, which is, for example, in COVID, one of the things we figured out was that, that people didn't trust the institutions that prior to COVID had been sacrosanct. People said, stay inside, wear a mask, don't go out, do all these other things. And society said, well, that's not the bargain I signed up for. So people are worldwide very distrustful of those big systems anymore. And so I think that's going to unleash an entirely new wave of innovation. And we're going to see that within the next few years. It's a very exciting time. You, you mentioned the Fed a little bit. Now, thank you for the, the five Ds. The Fed is a, a F. It ends in a D, so it's not quite there. How much of the Fed does it even matter? Because a lot of what you're saying, you're like, it doesn't matter what the Fed's going to do. These are the themes. So, so do you even focus on that? Do you worry about it when people are saying, are they going to cut or when they're going to cut or if there's another hike or da-da-da? 
you know, higher for longer. Does any of that matter in your perspective? It does matter, but here's why. You know, the, the Fed is like a Keynesian beauty contest, right? The Fed, nobody cares about what the Fed does or doesn't do. What everybody cares about when you're in the street, you're in the markets, is what does everybody think that all the other traders are going to do based on what the Fed might or might not say? That's a Keynesian beauty contest in which the contestants are judged by looking at the other judges, not the contestants themselves. So to me, I look at the Fed, you know, I was one of the very first in the water saying transitory is the wrong call. They've messed this up six ways to Sunday. And I was harshly critical of the Fed. I still am. I think that I think they're as wrong about rates and labor as they were about transitory. But what's happening is the market is doing the Fed's job. So do I look at the Fed? Yes, I do, but only to the extent that I'm interested in what other market participants think it means for the Fed. I don't place a lot of credence in what Jerome Powell and his armies of PhDs are going to have to say, because I think they're using desperately flawed models that are outmoded and outdated. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. So if you were that job, right? Powell quits, they say, Keith, you're in charge now. What, what would you do tomorrow? What would you do differently? Oh, boy. Well, first thing I do is I'd acknowledge there's a fiscal problem, not a rates problem, because the Fed can't do its job as long as the government and, you know, take the politics out of it. I, I do money, Eric. I don't have the luxury of taking sides. People say, oh, you're going to politicize this. No, I'm not. This is an American problem. This is not a Democratic problem. It's not a Republican problem. This is an American problem. When you have a financial institution that can't do its job because our government is so dysfunctional. I think it's a mandatory requirement, personally, that anybody who sits at the Fed or anybody who sits inside Congress or even in the White House has to take economics 101. What I would do with it if I were in the Fed is I'd say, okay, you, you knuckleheads have got to stop the spending. we got to figure out how to cut some things finally because this can't be a one-way train forever. And this is where the perma bears are correct. You know, Ultimately, that's going to come home to roost. We don't know when. But I would immediately engage some of the American ingenuity. I would concentrate on fixing the supply chains. I would provide incentives to companies that can hire and keep people that would be able to bring prices down. I would reward them for doing so. Because those are the things that are going to impact millions of consumers that are otherwise getting the short end of the stick. If I were sitting in the Fed's job, the first thing I would be doing is I would say, okay, what's the number here? And one of the questions that got me into a lot of hot water, I said, okay, Jay Powell, you know, I get it. What's your number? What's the fat? How much money do you have to destroy by raising rates to step back and say, you know what? My analysis isn't working. I need new methods. I need to look at this. A rational business leader in the civilian world, in the private sector, would have had a number and said, okay, if it hits X percent and I'm still wrong, wait, time out. We're going to figure this out. They haven't done back to the drawing board. To me, that's a tremendous problem. So I don't believe the Fed is a relevant institution, certainly not the way it used to be. And I think that, in fact, uh, History shows very clearly that we've done better as a country without the Fed. You know, do we get rid of it in today's day and age? You know, I'm not smart enough to figure that out, Eric. I don't know. But if I were in charge, I would certainly be bringing it back to real money. I'd be bringing it back to a combination of hard assets that are accountable. And I would control the credit system. I wouldn't let people deal with this idea of, of creating phantom currency via credit card offers. I wouldn't turn that information into a digital piece. I'd re-examine I'd re the, the clearing window, the treasury window, because this idea that you, know, you can have financial zombies borrowing money. I mean, nobody ever went broke on accrual accounting. So to me, it's all about getting real, about implementing basic, basic accounting principles, basic common sense. Do we have enough money to keep the country running tomorrow? And if not, what do we do about it? What do you mean? And then the other part of the answer earlier, you said the market is doing the Fed's job. What did you mean by that? What's an example of that? 
Well, sure. Every time the Fed comes out with something, it's, oh, we got this data, then traders run around screaming like chickens with their head cut off. Oh, that means the Fed is going to raise rates. No, it doesn't. What it means is you think the Fed is going to raise rates. Therefore, you have gotten off the juice, meaning you've ditched your debt and you're starting to sell the big tech companies and other things because you don't want a margin call in the middle of the night. It has nothing to do with the Fed. What the Fed might or might not say is, is an ancillary argument. So if I were looking at that and I would say, how, how is the Fed going to work? To me, again, it's, it's, it's a very simple proposition. I think you've got to be very clear about what you want to accomplish. Jerome Powell isn't stupid. I mean, he's clearly very smart, but he's also been very clear that the American people are an expendable asset. He wants you to lose your job because that's how he thinks he's going to bring inflation down. And the markets have said, nah, that didn't happen. And they continue because of liquidity and all the other things that I've mentioned, continue to bid these prices up. Great companies are producing great results. That's where the money is going, regardless of what Fed, what Fed says. The markets are sorting this out. So people want to buy less expensive groceries. They want to go down market from big high restaurants to fast food chains like McDonald's. And there's a reason why McDonald's and Burger King are doing very, very well. It's because consumers are going out of their highbrow restaurants and they're down marking their skin. There's a reason why Costco and Walmart and Amazon are flourishing. And the stock market reflects that because it's based on profits, whereas the Fed is based on covering costs. So that's a different animal. You make a good point, right? They want to raise rates. They want to sow down inflation. They've got to create a recession. People have to lose their jobs. But then it goes back to the other problem. Once that happens, oh, then the government starts spending more money because we got to help people out because they lost their jobs. And now we have more spending. And then we have more inflation. And we, we keep getting these, these cycles and we don't really get ahead. No, we don't. And, and you know, again, this is, this is the really tough stuff, right? It's very easy to get into the weeds on that issue. But as a professional investor, I don't have the luxury of doing that. I got to find companies that are going to navigate that morass no matter what, practically no matter what happens next. And so I've got to make a series of calculated bets in, in doing my research, find those companies that can move ahead anyway. And the average individual investor doesn't go that far. They don't think that far. They, they, they get together on social media. They get together at their barbecue. Oh, this is terrible. Oh, my gosh. And, they, you know, there's a lot of belly aching and lollygagging going around. But when you actually talk to a professional investor, professional investor doesn't care about being right or wrong. Professional investors care about being profitable because you can be profitable even if you're dead wrong. That's a different equation. And I think more and more investors, frankly, are beginning to wake up to that. Certainly our folks, certainly our research clients are, and the professional asset advisors that we deal with on a consulting basis, they are beginning to understand this. And their clients are, are reaping those benefits. What do you mean you can be profitable even if you're dead wrong? What does that mean? Well, for example, you know, you can say, well, I think the dollar is going to crash X, Y, and Z, and Apple's not going to sell as many units in China. I looked at that and said, well, horse feathers, they're moving production to India. They've got a great ecosystem. They're going to move forward. I think Apple's going to do very well anyway. Turns out I was right. And all the naysayers about China's doom and gloom and Apple's not going to sell anything there were wrong. If you look at Tesla, for example, people yell and scream about Elon Musk personally, love him or hate him. I don't care. What I care about is you've got a visionary executive who plays by his own rule book. That's really, when you get to the crux of the issue, what Wall Street doesn't like is he plays by his own rules and his rules are effective enough and he's got enough capital that he can make dang near whatever he feels like happen. 
That's what Wall Street really doesn't like. So as an investor, I don't care who likes what. With a company like Tesla, I'm going to look at Elon Musk and say, what's he going to do next? Where's he likely to go? Where is he going to take things? If you look at Tesla, it's AI, it's charging, it's all these other things that are beginning to be valued, but are not yet reflected in the company's stock price. And if we if we look back in parallels, I'm a, I'm a big proponent, Eric, of history rhymes. It doesn't repeat exactly, but it rhymes. Apple had a very similar set of services that it monetized before it went parabolic and achieved its trillion dollar valuation. I think Tesla's on the cusp of doing exactly the same thing. What do you mean by similar services? Services, infrastructure, payments, new technology. These are all things that Elon Musk is bringing to the forefront. So that to me makes Tesla, even though it's had an incredible run, one of the most compelling companies for the next 10 years. And that, that gets back to, so as we look at this year, we know the stocks that did well last year, right? But the stocks that did well last year aren't necessarily the stocks that did well in 22, right? There's usually a different rotation of the leaders. So how do you figure out well, what's going to be good this year? I know it was good last year, but I don't know if they're going to be the same. Is it just, hey, just take the 10 best stocks and, and, and buy those again? Or is it look for some mean reversion? How does someone, if they want to do what you're saying, okay, fine. I, I don't want to do, do all 500 stocks. I want to pick 10 good ones. But I can't imagine it's just going to repeat from the 10 from last year. What, what is their strategy there? To, well, to that's, that's, that's the point. That's the very focus of the issue. The crux of the issue, Eric, is history rhymes. It doesn't repeat. So you know, if you're looking year to year, day to day, week to week, you've got a much shorter, bumpier time frame, right? But what I'm suggesting, what my chaos theory studies, science of complexity, is when in doubt, zoom out. Who are the companies that are going to carry you five years, 10 years out? That's the time horizon that I'm interested in because the computers and everything else, you know, you can't predict this stuff day to day, but you can, there's an element of predictability to it as the money grows. So first things first, you know, are you going to buy the ones that performed last year? No, not necessarily. You might, but not necessarily. Am I going to buy or take a very hard look at the ones that have had a good five-year run or a 10-year run? you're dang skippy I'm going to because those are the companies that are probably going to be there, particularly if they've got large dividends, if they've got consistent dividends, great balance sheets, must have products and services. I'm less concerned about the squiggles than I am about the long-term momentum. And when do you know to get out of something or at least lighten up? What, are you looking for a level? Are you looking for GE? Are you, I know you said the P's are a little bit an outdated approach. When do you decide, okay, I believe in the company. I just don't believe anymore in the growth of the stock. Well, again, that, you know, I approach this very differently than a lot of people do, but you've got to understand my framework, right? So the markets are going to make that decision for you. And there's two ways I'm going to look at it. If I'm a trader and I'm looking for an exit, I'm going to be looking for very specific price points. I'm going to be looking for market behavior that's going to take me up to a profit objective. Classic stuff. Easy, easy, easy peasy. Draw a line on a chart. Boom, there it is. If I hit it, I'm done. Or I lighten up or I capture some profits or whatever. If I want to get more sophisticated, I can sell covered calls to lock in profits that way and get paid for doing it. But you know, really, if I'm an investor and I'm thinking, okay, do I have to make a decision here, the short term or long term? You know, what it's going to come down to for me is, does the company still have the argument that made me buy it in the first place? In other words, can I make the statement that I still am interested in this company, regardless of price, because all these variables that were still there when I bought it are still there today? And if the answer is no, if suddenly, you know, for example, if Apple suddenly went into swimming pools and that was all they were going to make instead of iPhones, I'd be gone like the wind so fast, the door wouldn't even have a time to hit me in the rear end. But 
The odds of that happening are probably not going to happen very soon. But there's plenty of other companies that have made those kinds of choices. You know, Intel, for example, famously missed the move to mobile. They famously missed a lot of other the big changes. And now that company's playing catch up. Now, Pat Gelsinger, CEO, he's probably the man to do this. He's going to get it where it needs to be. But the problem is in the interim, you know, I took a look at Intel and said, no, I'm, I'm done with that one because the fundamental reasons for which I bought the company weren't there. Ford was another one. Ford made this huge splash about EVs last year in March saying, oh, it's going to be great. This is the company's future. We're going to divert all these resources. Then the UAW hit. Then they figured out, oh, well, EVs are kind of expensive and they're tough to produce. And oh my, we're going to have all these legacy costs associated with them. So suddenly Ford reversed course. That tells me management was never committed to it in the first place. So, you know, I sold my Ford stock. Boom, I'm done. I'm gone. I'm not coming back to that until Ford can make up its mind about what it wants to be when it grows up. Because otherwise, the risks aren't worth it. Okay. What, what you know, as we, as we leave here, what else do you find you're getting a lot of questions for 24? What's the number one question that I'm going to say your clients give you, whether it's an institutional client or it's an investor? What, do you, what is the biggest fear for this year? The biggest question, and this sounds kind of funny, but the biggest question is usually something along these lines. Okay, Keith, I hear what you're saying. Okay, the research makes sense. But is this really happening? Is this for real? Can the big companies get bigger, more powerful, and stronger? Can the investment markets bear that performance out? And my answer to both those questions is yes. History is very clear about that. If we look at the 1920s, we look at the 1950s, we look into the 80s, even the 90s, you know, I believe we're standing on the cusp of another golden era of investing. And it's going to be very different than prior eras. But the number one question is, is this for real? Because what people are struggling with is not the companies. It's not even the markets, Eric. They're struggling with the fact that their own personally preconceived notions about the marketplace no longer apply or may no longer fit like they once did. That's causing a confidence in crisis, a crisis confidence, for lack of a better term. Okay. Okay. Now, this is helpful. The, where, by the way, if people want to you know dig deeper with you, where can they find all your stuff? I know there's five with Fitz.com, Fitz, Keith Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald. Oh, you're like, very kind. All, yeah. all the places that, that we can find, because I know you're in a lot of places. Well, thank you. You're, you're very kind. I mean, the easiest thing to do is just go to my name, KeithFitz-Gerald.com. And my ancestors have been screwing this up for hundreds of years with the hyphen. So, you know, unlike modern people, we're not adding the hyphen because it's, it's gosher, it's, 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 it's de rigueur, right? My family's had that hyphen for several hundred years. So KeithFitzGerald.com. They can find the research. They can, if, if they're professional clients, they can get in touch with us for a little asset consulting. If they're professionals, there's the fivewithfits.com. I personally, you know, again, I... You know, I, I, this is not a low, a high pressure environment. You know, I believe that any investor can be incredibly successful in the marketplace if they're armed with the right education, the right knowledge, and the right understanding. So, I have written the five with fits for my own use for years, and I never ever figured anybody else would find them interesting. But I began publishing them when people urged me to do it in, in COVID. So we said, oh, you know, you ought to publish these. And, and now today we've got 25, 30,000 people around the world reading those every single day. Pros, individual investors alike, because, you know, evidently, uh, you know, I'm an equal opportunity offender. I've been fortunate to get a lot of stuff right, and hopefully it's helpful. So that's the spirit within which I write it. What, what's, what is with the hyphen? So it's, like, <laughs> why, why is that there? I didn't, I, I've never seen a spelling like that but it's, since you mentioned it. 
Well, like all good legends, some fundamental element of it is truth. You know, like, like we were wearing underwear. It happened on a Tuesday. And other than that, it's complete horse feathers, right? So as the story goes, Fitz is, is, is the old Irish son of. So Fitzgerald, Fitzpatrick, Fitzjohn, you know, son of Gerald, son of Gerald, son of Gerald. Well, anyway, according to my family's history, my ancestors had, uh, had some wives that were falling out of the castle windows because they couldn't produce a legitimate male child. They produced an illegitimate male child in the old European heraldic tradition. They added the hyphen, which was also called the bar sinister. So we've been the bastard sons of Gerald for 400 years. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> interesting. That's that's. I, I don't know what else. I I feel like I shouldn't pry any deeper on that. You know, the awkward family family uh, drama that we all have hiding centuries. Well, you know, it's what, what's so interesting about that, right? Is is it really does produce some interesting conversational moments. When I fly into Heathrow, for example, it is such a distinct spelling. People are like, oh, you know, he's back. He's one of them. And it's like, yes, right. I am. Here I am. Right. Uh, but you know, names are very interesting too, because you know, even from an investing standpoint, if you look at the way names are constructed and you look at the human migration patterns, we're seeing now things in the genetic analysis. We're seeing things in the way our world is constructed that because of AI, because of medical advances, we couldn't otherwise see. So I think within the next 10 years, Eric, I mean, this is, this is really cool. And I think we're going to solve cancer. I think we're going to solve hunger. I think we're going to solve water. I think we're going to solve a lot of the problems that are presently unsolvable. And the companies that are going to be able to operate at scale are going to create an entirely new generation of millionaires. They're going to bring people together rather than pull them apart. So, you know, again, really at my core, I am an optimism, an optimist. This is why I invest. This is the story that I want to see play out. And I think we're going to get there. Can, can AI solve the government deficit, the government debt? Can it solve that? <laughs> well, I tell you what, I'm not sitting inside the beltway and I'm not smart enough to answer that question, but I would like to believe that all joshing aside, AI is going to allow our government officials to understand just how off base they have been. And this is not driven at either party, just how off base the systems are, because it's very hard to look at our health insurance system, our VA benefits, our congressional spending, our pork bellying, any, the whole system's broken. So if we can take AI and we can have companies that can clarify that, can begin to draw relationships between data that otherwise is not apparent, then in true chaos theory fashion, we're going to begin to derive some value from that. So my personal take is I think government as we know it is going to change within the next 10 to 15 years. I think the whole idea of a currency is going to change within the next 10 to 15 years. It's entirely conceivable. I think digital currency, for example, is inevitable. I think that is going to be, for my children and my grandchildren, that is certainly going to be their way of life. The question is, how do we keep that assigned on a national level, or do we? Does it truly become a global community? These are things I don't know the answer to, but these are things that I think about as an investment strategist every day, because there's very few companies operating at the scale needed to pull something like that off. That'll be a whole other conversation. That, yes, we'll, have to, we'll have to talk more about that, the, the digital currency, and what does that mean, and the AI impact on healthcare. There's a lot, there's a lot to get into, and what that will look like over the next few years and, and how that'll affect investing and what you're investing in and how you're investing certainly as well. So, but again, it's, it's just, it, the, the thing is, I mean, at the end of the day, this is the coolest thing. You know, the world belongs to the optimist. 
Optimists start, particularly in the investor, they start from, hey, how can I make this happen? What do I want to accomplish rather than stopping because of all the things that keep you from getting into the marketplace? So if you know, I have a theme that's going into 2024, it's really, you can do this. You got this. And the markets are going to bear that out. Appreciate it, Keith. This is great. Really eye-opening. I appreciate your perspective on, on a lot of these topics that we touched on today. Thanks so much for spending some time with me and kicking off the year here. It's an honor. Thanks for having me. I hope I'm fortunate enough to earn an invitation back. Thanks again to my guest, Keith Fitzgerald. If you appreciated what you saw here, what you heard, please like the video, like the podcast, like the episode, subscribe, share it. All of those things really help get the content out there to as many people as possible. And if you are trying to figure out what to do with your own finances, you can go to wealthyon.com. There's a very short form there, very short form, and we can connect you with investment professionals that we endorse. So there's no commitment. There's no fee, right? There's, there's nothing to worry about there. You can just have a conversation and see if that person is right for you, if they're right for your family's investment, planning, finances, and all of that. It's a free public service that we provide. We want to help as many people as possible. So that's just a short form at wealthyon.com. If you're trying to figure out, maybe you need a professional to help you sort out this very difficult investment landscape. And then finally, check out the Anthony Scaramucci show. Speak up with Anthony Scaramucci every Friday. 11 a.m. Eastern, it's live, taking your calls, taking your email questions. So you can definitely check that out. And if you have a question to submit to Anthony, wealthyon.com forward slash ask Anthony. You can submit it there on the website. He'll answer it on the show, Fridays, 11 a.m. Eastern. Thanks again for watching and joining Wealthyon. I'm Eric Chemi. We'll see you next time.